The holidays are a moment of togetherness and joy and a reminder of how tradition creates happy and fulfilled communities. Make this holiday season patriotic with a visit to National Harbor and its stunning new Spirit Park. Marvel at one of the largest American flags in the region and beautiful displays of American art. Make this holiday season the most meaningful of all at National Harbor. Learn more at nationalharbor.com dash spirit park. Yeah, it's called Conversations with Jeff, not Screaming Matches. Yeah, yeah I, 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 you and I do not agree on Calvinism. But look how nice we are to each other. I think it's going to really shock a lot of people, thrill a lot of people. A lot of people are going to have to do some soul searching. It's like, you know what? What are you doing? You're spending all your time trying to destroy another Christian because you don't understand what's going on mm-hmm. when you should be out there winning people for Jesus. Right. Thank you for the job you're doing. Thanks for being willing to address these kind of issues. They're vital to the church. I feel sorry for what's coming your way, but God bless you, man. It's it's a good, healthy conversation, and, and let's keep growing together in the Lord. People won't change unless they hear the truth, though. And so we need to know the truth, uh, speak the truth. And then the last one I would say is that we need to stay in the truth, uh, no matter what the consequences are. Okay, everybody, welcome to today's episode of, uh, of Conversations with Jeff. Uh, you know, as always, putting out a new podcast, uh, pretty much every day. Yesterday had, we had on, uh, Minnie Robinson, uh, which was a great conversation on, uh, on conservative, on conservatism, uh, a lot of her platform as she's running for Congress in Nevada. Uh, it's also going to be the uh, very first episode of Conversations with Jeff that we are going to have a parental advisory for. Uh, so if uh, if you're cool with that, check that out. It, it, it was a fascinating conversation. Um, also, a reminder as well before we get started, um, we are uh, working on a new project uh, with uh, J.D. Rucker, Sam Jones, Ken Peters, called the American Conservative Movement. Uh, we are, you know, we've got our upcoming conference that we're putting on on April 18th. Uh, it's going to be an online conference, just like we did with the Destroy Social Justice Conference. Got a great lineup of speakers, uh, including uh, Michael Johns, co-founder of the Tea Party, Jerry Wayne, the guy who got into a uh, into an argument with uh, with Joe Biden, and they debated over. AR-14s. Um, we got uh, Greg Glock coming back. We got Mindy Robinson. We got a great lineup of people. So definitely check that out. If you go to AmericanConservativeMovement.com, uh, you guys can fill out the information, uh, get on our uh, email news list. Uh, we are going to be trying to do everything we can to unify around conservative values, conservative messaging. We've already had several thousand people sign up for our email newsletter, so make sure you check that out. Uh, we'll be updating you with a lot of really cool, exciting announcements over there. So definitely go there, AmericanConservativeMovement.com. Uh, uh, excited today. We've, we're bringing back uh, Pastor Sam Jones, which I believe this is like officially you're setting the all-time con- uh, conversations yes. record for the most times guesting on the on the show. So welcome back. Hey, it's, it's great to be here. I was getting kind of nervous there because you're doing these, these conversations all the time. And so I was like going, oh man, somebody's going to catch me here pretty soon. So I gotta, <laughs> I gotta get back on. I know, I know. You, you got, you got to put some distance between you and you in second place. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's getting, getting crazy out there. And of course, you're doing the, um, 
uh, a nation held hostage. Is that uh, is that what it's uh, called? America held hostage. Yeah. America held hostage. Yeah. Uh, in, in the uh, well, morning for you. I, I guess it's it's like eleven o'clock here, so I guess that's still in the morning. But yeah, yeah, it's like nine nine a.m. when when we do it here, so I'm still sip, sipping my coffee. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, but you know, it's, it's been fun. It's been fun too with, uh, you know, we've got, you know, you know, like a bunch of new shows, you know, we're putting out, uh, you know, we've got the America held hostage, which is our daily news show that John Hinton and I are doing, uh, just breaking down the news like every morning for about a half an hour or so. Um, and then we brought, we brought on Rucker Report and then, you know, we've got, we've got a new shoot show with you coming out here. Uh, uh we're going to be putting out later today. Uh, called monuments. Um, share a little bit about what you're what you're doing with that podcast and uh, and what gave you that idea. Yeah, so uh, it's called monuments, and and I'm I'm kind of a history buff, uh, and and I really like podcasting too. Uh, some of you probably probably have noticed that. I'm gonna turn myself down just a little bit. It's coming in a little hot. I don't know if that helps out or not, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Um, I really enjoy doing podcasts and, and I'm a history buff, really enjoy history. And, uh, this year I was actually kind of thinking through some, some different kind of podcast ideas, uh, over Christmas breaks. So you have a little bit of time there where things are, are a little bit slowed down and I'm just going, wow, I got time to think. I got all this time to do these podcasts and then real life starts up and you don't really have time. Uh, but coronavirus hit and it's like, oh yeah, I have this list of different podcast ideas. And one of them was, uh, monuments and and the idea there is actually comes from a song uh, one of my favorite uh, bands or groups it's a southern gospel group uh, called Legacy Five uh, years ago they sang this song uh, monuments and it asked the question where are the monuments we should be building so our children can find uh, the way to get home and uh, this year we uh, my wife and I we adopted a, a child his name's Thomas and. Uh, just kind of thinking of that, going, you know, I'd, I'd like to to build up some monuments for him. And so the podcast series is actually dedicated to him. Um, and basically, we're going through different monuments or, or different pieces of history uh, that I think are important for everybody to remember. And so I'm not necessarily addressing uh, my son in that, but just kind of going and, and making it for everybody. But it is with him in mind. And I think the uh, the first episode is on the Declaration of Independence. Um the, the second one is on uh, the the Haddock Memorial, which um, most people probably have no idea what that is, uh, and, and I'm just going to leave it at that. But it's it's great. It goes over the first martyr uh, in Iowa, first Christian martyr in Iowa, and um, the one I was just getting prepared before we we had this was going to be on the New England Primer, and so I'm I'm excited for that. Uh, the goal is to to look at history, and of course I'm taking some history that's. It's probably going to be all American history, uh, and looking at that and then tying it into scripture, finding a scripture, a scriptural uh, application and something that we need to remember history and learn from that and stay in the right path, uh, according to history. Yeah. So yeah, I'm. I'm excited for that. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to, to listen to it. I listened to the first episode that you, that you sent over that we're, that we're going to be posting later today. Really cool. You know, again, di- diving into American history. And that's the thing is like, I feel like, both in secular society and within the Christian church, nobody really talks about American history anymore at all. As, and, and you would think that, you know, especially as Christians, that's definitely something that we should be talking about because, you know, our American history is so deeply rooted in in our faith and that sort of thing. And that, so to me, that's something that we should be talking about more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the revolution really started um, from the pulpit. You know, it didn't start uh, actually, you know, in a... You know, 
political figures getting together and sitting around a table and going, oh, we need to start a revolution. And it it didn't start as the secular history would say of because people got mad about a tea tax or a stamp tax or or something like that. I mean, there's no doubt people did get upset about those things. Um, but really, they it started uh, from the Black Robed Regiment, uh, which, uh, you know, Peter Mullenberg and Jonathan Mayhew uh, are a couple of those the key uh, pastors in that time who really stood up and they preached these messages. Uh, Jonathan Mayhew's message on Romans 13 um, that, that really went and he gave a discourse that actually ended up being preserved as a scholar select by, uh, you know, our secular government. Uh, we, we view this as, as, a, as a document, his sermon, uh, this discourse on Romans 13. And should we have unlimited or limited view uh, of submission to, to government? And, and of course, he goes out there and says, you know, a government has to be um, submitted to God, otherwise it's not a a real government, essentially. And then, uh, and then uh, Peter Mullenberg he he went out and preached a, a sermon out of Ecclesiastes and said, you know, there's a time for war and there's a time for peace, and and basically said, you know, now is the time. And then he disrobes and has a uh, continental um, outfit or not outfit, but a continental uniform on under underneath it, and he ended up being uh, a general uh, by the time it all ended up. Uh, being done as he led a his church out to actually uh, create a regiment in in this uh, in the Continental War, and so I mean the church played a, a very significant role in that. And today, what we find is that that Pietism has really gone. And I know we've talked a lot about Pietism before, but Pietism has really gone and, and hammered the church, uh, and and that's really where we find ourselves. And that's uh, what we're seeing play out today. Uh, it's kind of crazy to go and look at that. The pietism play out and say, well, the government said so, so we're just going to close our doors. We're not going to do anything. We're, you know, the government knows best. Um, we're just going to bow down to the government. Yeah, which I think, which I think really kind of ties down to or ties back into kind of what we're seeing happening today, where you know the government is being overbearing and overstepping its bounds and things like that. And so I think, you know, that bring, and I know we've talked about this before, but dealing with Romans 13, um, and there is the critique of our founding fathers coming, coming out of a lot of, you know, evangelical pastors of saying that, you know, our nation was founded in sin. They rebelled against the government unbiblically and in sin. And, you know, even right now we should just submit and obey, you know, essentially no matter what they say. And now we're literally seeing them shutting down our churches and, you know, taking away a lot of our constitutional rights. And so as Christians, like, A, I mean, I already know the answer, but A, was America founded in sin? And B, how do we as believers respond when the government's telling us to do these things that are literally taking away our rights? Yeah, I, I mean, obviously my answer is is that no, our nation wasn't founded in sin. You know, one of the first acts of Congress was to order, I believe it was 30,000 Bibles because uh, Br- the British uh, had gone and, and blockaded us so that we couldn't get Bibles in. And so it was to, to buy 30,000 Bibles and have them printed in the United States. That was one of the first acts of Congress, which, I mean, when you look at it in, in those ways, it's like, oh, wait, maybe it was more than just a political thing that was going on. It, there was actual spiritual uh, warfare that was happening, too. Um, and, uh, uh, of course that's because the Bible isn't just a book of religious tenets. Um, you know, it's, it is actually gives us, as it says, all that pertains to life and godliness. And so if we want to know how to, to live, uh, best, uh, according politically, uh, well, we live according to the Bible and it tells us exactly that, uh, or how to do that. And, uh, you know, one thing I think that we need to kind of go over because, when you look at the grand scope of history, especially church history, 
the 1700s, especially the late 1700s, really wasn't that long ago. And I think a lot of people will go out and say, well, the 1700s, you know, that wasn't that long ago. And, and most people really only go back to the Reformation uh, or that's kind of the, the big um, time frame, as they say, the, the Reformation. In, in, and so they'll go and say, well, this whole take on Romans 13 uh, that I would take and that, you know, Jonathan Mayhew took and Peter Mullenberg and, and other people are taking today, uh, they would say, you know, that's that's kind of a new thing. It's an American thing. It's just from American culture uh, and things like that. But the the issue is, is that uh, in Germany in 1550, which I, I believe is, you know, before the Reformation there, um, it, the pastors of Matterberg, Germany, got together and they stood against, I believe it was Philip V, uh, stood against him and actually put forth the doctrine of lesser magistrates or the doctrine of the interposition, we might say, where it says that uh, those uh, who are in lower authority naturally can go and oppose those in higher authority uh, if those in higher authority are going against God's word. And of course, we could go back all the way to Acts chapter 5, where the church is essentially established um, on saying we would rather obey God than man. So therefore saying that the civil government needs to obey God in order to be right, in order for us to obey, which is is all we're trying to say with Romans 13. Yeah, well, you know, and, and even like looking at, if I'm remembering my church history correct, like Martin Luther was on the run from governments. Like it's like, like he, 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 you know, Put put his uh, his ninety five thesis up up on the up on the door, and the, he was pretty much fleeing the rest of his life. I mean, it's not like it's not like the 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 authorities came along like, hey, you know what, you broke the rules, and he's like, okay, cool. I'm going to submit to you guys. I'm going to come in, and you guys can burn me at the stake. Like he's like, no, I'm gonna, I'm going to flee for my life. Right, right, and that's yeah, that's that's what I look at is is all these people. They're they're saying you know Romans thirteen. Well, we realize that the Apostle Paul lost his life at the hands of a civil government, right? They, they don't kill you for obeying a civil government. So Romans 13 is not an unlimited thing, just looking at even the life of Paul. Um, and of course, we could say the same about several other apostles and of course, Jesus Christ himself, um, which really puts you in some weird place there if you're going to say that we have to have a standard that's greater than Jesus, you know? Yeah, yeah. Now, now, now what, what do you make with... The it, the seeming the seemingly like uh, uninterest in American history by our evangelical leaders because it seems like it's almost like there's literally no discussion about it anymore. Like I remember growing up and it was like you know we used to you know in, in church we used to have the American flag up on stage. It was very it was much more like patriotic and things like that. And it seems like now in the evangelical world it's like there's this separation. What do you what do you make of that? Yeah, so uh, there, there are about three different things to my mind. One is is when you said the word separation, there's this term called separation of church and state, which uh, that was coined, that phrase was coined in a letter uh, from Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptists where he said, we'll build a wall of separation. And we just took that phrase then, the separation of church and state, and we, we ran with it uh, of like these two things are, are totally separate. And in some senses, they are totally separate, uh, but it's not that in the sense of you don't take your faith and apply it to politics. That's not how it's separate. It's the idea of the church, or excuse me, the state has no business in ecclesiastical law, which just to make it, you know, really about what's happening today, 
um, I, I do believe when we have services is part of ecclesiastical law. Uh, and if it's not a part of ecclesiastical law, then, you know, we, we have a lot of apologizing to do to the Seventh-day Adventist. And I'm not saying that that was their only issue, but we, uh, we, we do kind of come out there and we hammer on Seventh-day Adventists as saying, no, 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 it's the first day of the week. Not not the last day, not Saturday. It's Sunday. It's the, it's the Lord's Day. Uh, we have quite a bit of apologizing to do if we're going to take the opinion that ecclesi- that when the church gathers together uh, isn't part of the ecclesiastical law. Like that's just a ridiculous position that people are holding. Uh, and so one is that idea of we've we've misjudged that idea of separation of church and state. Uh, another thing as to why I think that um, uh, the the American church has, has left out American history or quit talking about it is a lot of our education system and I, I'm not necessarily an expert in this but I but I do know um, that our education system has started to omit some history uh, has started to revise some history you know most people uh, really only go and they they look at uh, Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and Thomas Paine are the three main characters in the, the Revolutionary War. And there's no doubt they, they were three main characters in the Revolutionary War. You know, Thomas Paine with common sense, um, Ben Franklin as the elder statesman and, and Thomas Jefferson as the, the framer of the uh, Declaration of Independence. Um, but there were a lot of other guys, uh, that were just as prominent and, um, they were a lot more Christian, these other people, whereas in Thomas Jefferson, uh, Ben Franklin and Thomas Paine are probably the three least Christian people. And Jefferson and Franklin, we would probably deem as more uh, heterodox Christianity. Still, they would probably claim Christ. Um, I don't believe we'll see them in heaven. I believe they were heterodox outside of orthodoxy, but um, they still were probably, uh, at least in a social sense, considered Christian. They, they were. They both went to church and things like that. Thomas Paine wasn't. There's there's no doubt about that. Um, but when we, we look at that, I think there's kind of that revisionist history and omitting of history that plays into this a little bit just within our culture. Our whole culture doesn't understand um, Christianity. And the the other thing that, that really has come about um, that I think attacks this is, is this thing called Situation Ethics, which happened – was a book that was written in the late 60s uh, by Joseph Fletcher, Francis Fletcher. And he um, – uh, really this whole idea – was to bring in more of a relative morality uh, into the church. And it really has brought into a more relative uh, morality in the church. A lot of people have a more relative uh, morality, even if they don't want to admit it. And with that, it brings us a rejection of history because it's more about our feelings. And of course, our history was very much based on objective truth as opposed to subjective truth. And so we don't really want to go into uh, uh, follow <laughs> that that kind of uh, thinking. Yeah, yeah, and, and I feel like that you know we're we're seeing again we're seeing like you were saying we're seeing it both in the secular world and within Christianity, and and one of those things that we are seeing is you know there is this attack on on the monuments that of of our country too, you know, and you know things that are mm-hmm. symbolizing the past, and especially you know pretty much anybody who owned a slave it's like we got to get rid of that that memory it's it's like they're getting it's this cancel culture but applying it towards history which which is very strange and very interesting what what's your take as like a pastor looking at these things where you're looking at okay that guy was clearly flawed he owned slaves he was a slaveholder that must mean he he was a racist should we be having these memorials to people like that 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's an absolutely great question. And when you said the word uh, cancel culture in there, I think that really helps set exactly what's happening and in- where we're going wrong here with our response to these monuments and, and things like that. Uh, in cancel culture, it's it's just a complete polarization. And we see this in almost every area uh, of our culture today. Um, people go and they look at and it's either this person never did anything wrong or this person never did anything right. And, uh, you know, if we look at some prominent figures in Christianity, uh, in, in probably more in the, well, we can even look in Christianity, but in the Jewish side of things, on the Old Testament, when we start there, you know, you look at Moses. Well, Moses was a murderer. Um, you look at uh, um, Abraham. Abraham lied about his wife uh, being his sister twice. You look at um, David. David murdered and then he... Uh, also committed adultery, uh, he had multiple wives, all these kind of things. Are we going to go and look at those people and say, they never did anything right? I mean, the Apostle Paul, for goodness sakes, he was uh, he was a Christian killer. I mean, his you know his hobby was, hey, let's go kill Christians today or throw them in jail. Um, you know, are, are we going to, you know, just look at those things and, uh, and say, okay, because they did these bad things, they never did anything right? No, that's the wrong way to look at it. It's also wrong to deny that they ever did anything wrong. And, and that's, that's important to understand. There is a balance in, in, of course, these monuments, no matter who we put a monument up to, uh, unless it's Jesus Christ, these people have committed sins, uh, some more egregious than others, uh, but that doesn't necessarily take away their value uh, in what they contributed to society, what they contributed to our nation, what they contributed to a church or something like that. And so as we go and we look at it that way, uh, we do need to go and, and look at it and say, okay, yes, they, they did some things that were wrong, and we can learn from their negative examples. But then we should also go and look at the things that they did right and learn from their positive examples and walk in those things. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, another example that comes to mind is, would be Martin Luther, you know, because, I mean, he said some pretty anti-Semitic things, especially later on in his life. And But and to me, it's like we should totally condemn those things that he said but that doesn't invalidate the good that he did as well. And I think that that, it, you know, and this is just my take on it, not to get too controversial, but I think that, that this is where I think a lot in the a lot of people in the quote-unquote discernment world or polemics world get things wrong, is that people mm-hmm. are la- either labeled 100% good, and you can never criticize them because they've been a faithful pastor for 50 years and could, you know, how dare you ever criticize them, or the person is totally wrong because of a particular belief that they have, and then you can you can never say anything good about them. And I feel like this this is no longer discernment or discerning between good and bad in situations. It's now labeling somebody a full-on heretic or a full-on apostle. Like, is essentially what it's coming down to. And I find that concerning. Yeah, well, I mean, so the example you brought up was Martin Luther. I, I'm not Lutheran. I'm Baptist. Uh, on top of that, I'm not even a Reformed Baptist. You know, uh, people like to go and say they're the Reformed Baptists and things like that. And I'm going, I don't know if you understand Baptist history, but that's okay. Um, and we look at uh, Luther. So I don't really have a ton in common theologically with Luther. We still sing a mighty fortress is our God. And it still says Martin Luther wrote that because he did. Uh, and I think that's a wonderful song. And that's not the only good thing that Martin Luther did, but it's just an example of something that even in a, a non-Reformed Baptist church – we still do actually, in some instances, in some ways, praise Martin Luther for what he did, even though we would disagree, even on some of the quote-unquote good things that he did, uh, we would dis- have some disagreements uh, with that. 
And I think you're exactly right in the polemics and the discernment uh, world is that a lot of it is we're not really discerning between right and almost right. A lot of times we're just trying to go in uh, instead of being a, a polemic, we're trying to be pol- we're trying to polarize people, uh, which there's a difference there. Uh, a polemic, of course, it, it can be a hard, harsh criticism, and there's nothing wrong with harsh criticisms. Jesus gave harsh criticisms. Paul gave harsh criticisms. The, the thing is, is that uh, we have to remember Jesus looked at Peter and he said, get thou behind me, Satan. And he also called him his friend. And Jesus was not a double-minded guy. Of course we know that. It's that idea of in that moment, he's going and in, in really hammering what's what's going on. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally agree, and I, and I think that it, it's where we we really need to get into the, the we really need to get into what's right and wrong, and maybe take a step back from all the labels that we try. We it's like we try to stereotype people too much, and we try to label people too much, as opposed to taking things on like a case by case basis. I feel like that's that's more of a discerning way of of handling things, and I think we can apply that to like American history. We could say, look, that person owned a slave. That was wrong. That person was racist. That was wrong. But then they also did promote freedom and liberty for for ever, for everybody as much as they possibly could at that time. You know, like there's certain things. It's like if we discern mm-hmm. the context, we discern what's going on. And I think that that applies both within the Christian theological realm and then also like the political societal realm as well. And I think that that's something that's missing on all fronts. Right. And uh, you, you know, one one example in the political realm is. Uh, Thomas Massey, um, just recently, he got absolutely crucified for basically making the House do their job and voting, and then plus he voted no on top of that. Uh, and the reality of it is is that if you would have asked uh, Donald Trump two months ago if he would have signed off on this, he would have said no, uh, because at that time – now, he, I, I would – in my opinion, I'm, I'm not a fan of the stimulus bill. I would say that was a, a bad decision to sign that bill uh, into uh, into law. Um, and, and I understand there, there's going to be some arguments and, and, and things like that. I, I, I err on the side of principle is, is what I would say. Uh, and, and that's kind of where I, where I take some things. But I mean, Thomas Massey for a principle that is literally in the Republican, uh, platform gets crucified, gets called a traitor, uh, and, and things like that. And it's just like that. That's ridiculous. That's literally in the Republican platform that he would say no to this. Yeah. Um, he's just erring on the side of principle. Well, I mean, I mean, think about it. Like under Obama, what would he sign? Like an eight hundred billion dollar bill, a stimulus bill, and mm-hmm. Republicans were like, "That's way too much money." Can you imagine how much debt we're going in for that? Like, I can't believe that you would do that. And he's over there trying to stimulate the, the economy that was that was struggling at that time. And I'm not saying it was right by any means. I was totally opposed to it. But then Trump comes around and is bragging about that it's it's the the largest stimulus in the history of our country, and which is true. And it's like. One Republican voted against it, if I'm remembering. It was just it, Thomas Massey, who's the only one that voted, right? Right. And I think that um, – I'm not sure, so don't don't quote me on this, but I, I think that both uh, Rand Paul and Ted Cruz were sick with the coronavirus at the time and were not able to vote. Yeah. Uh, and, and, I, and I know I that, and I know that, that they would vote the right way. Yeah, I, I know that Rand had said that he had applauded Thomas Massey for that as well, so that, that was good on him. Right. So I, I don't want to create uh, you know this this hero mentality out of uh, Thomas Massey, but I do want to praise him for for what he did because that is a tough stand. It would be tough to stand on your own, and I mean you know Trump is is missing out on his opportunity if he wants to go and say that this is you know the biggest stimulus bill in our country's history. I mean it, it, he can go beyond that. It's the biggest bill in the world, biggest stimulus package in the world's history. I mean it's it's incredibly large. 
Yeah. Well, and I, and I think that, you know, that, that just bringing Trump into this too makes for a fascinating conversation because what we're talking about totally applies to the whole Trump scenario where you've got mm-hmm. the never Trumpers and the Democrats that basically compare him to like a Hitler, right? He's like, he can never mm-hmm. do anything right. And then you've got the, the hardcore MAGA crowd that's like, he can only do right. He can't do any wrong. And then there's only a handful of people in the middle where we're like, well, he did that right. He did that wrong. Why can't we just call balls and strikes? And I feel like that's what's totally missing surrounding Trump is like, he's not all good. He's not all bad. Let's just call it for what it is. Right. It, well, and, and I think that that's, that's the way we really should approach any president. Um, and it, it does, it, it is a little tougher when uh, it, when it, when there's a Republican president or, or somebody who would definitely be framed in that idea of conservatism uh, for conservative Christianity, um, you know, when Trump moved the embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, uh, I applauded him. And I, I've been a huge critic of Donald Trump. I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that. Uh, I, I've been been a huge critic. And I mean, it's because I, I think if you look at his policies, he just signed the, the, the biggest stimulus package. Uh, I mean, right now, Economically, you, you could honestly make an argument that Donald Trump has been one of the most liberal presidents we've ever had. Now, I, I understand people might say, well, in context, it's a little different. I, I, I understand that. But still, just looking at straight facts, I, I think it'd be – I mean he just passed FDR uh, on that uh, with, this, with this new deal. It's, it's, it's a little tough uh, to, to look at that. Um, he's also, of course, not a total social conservative, which, uh, makes it, it difficult now. And, and, uh, we go and we look at that. I, I think that we need to call balls and strikes where Trump does well. Um, I think it's, it's great that he has spoke out, uh, well for the unborn. I think it's really bad that he's given $615 million, I think million, uh, I, I hope it's million and not billion, 615 million, uh, to, to Planned Parenthood, uh, you know, signed off on bills because the reality of it is it, he does have to sign a signature, put a signature on that. He could take a bigger stand. Uh, and, and, you know, I wish he would, but I do praise him when he speaks out well on these things. And I, and I think that's the, the balanced approach is to actually look at truth and to say, okay, this is what's right. This is what's wrong. And if he's on the right side of the issue, praise him. If he's on the wrong side of the issue, Say, hey, I you need to do better, Trump. You know, and that's not just for Donald Trump. That's for for anyone, though. Yeah, well, and, and I feel like that that's that's the approach that I think we need to be taking in general. And 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 that's the thing is like, as Americans and as Christians, we can disagree on some of those details, and we can debate some of those details. But I feel like it's those details that we need to be debating, not the person necessarily, because it's like. Again, like we were saying before, the person, somebody doesn't only do all bad and they don't only do all good. And again, we have to put that in context because we are all sinners and we all, you know, you know, without Christ, we can do no right. But within like this specific context, it is important that we are calling balls and strikes on those specific situations. And it's like, there's this crazy cancel culture that it's like, Trump is only all bad or he's literally the Messiah. There's no like middle ground at all anywhere. <laughs> right. It, it, and the Messiah talk always just, uh, you know, scares me because I'm going, oh, no, I, I really don't think Trump's the Antichrist. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, it, 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 and that's the next Messiah that's going to come, you know, a, f- a fake one. Yeah. Um, but 
Uh, no, I, I think you're exactly right, and I, and I think that we do need to take a step back and actually um, get a a large dose of of reality. And by reality, I don't mean uh, going and, and trying to find faults in your favorite characters or something like that. What I mean by that is is actually going looking at saying what's right, what's wrong, and then use that measure to make our decisions uh, and to make our praises or our condemnations of what's right and what's wrong. And to look in the exact specific areas that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the other thing that I wanted to, you know, talk to you a little bit about is, you know, you do have your uh, book that you got coming out, uh, coming up this summer called Five Steps to Kill a Nation. Um, and, and coronavirus uh, was is not one of the chapters, so <laughs> just going to throw that out there. Yes, exactly. I mean, I mean, it it, it, it is it is ironic that that was, that, ended, that was the title right around now. Um, but, but what, what's the main, what's the main premise of the book in the sense of, I mean, clearly you're seeing, okay, our, our country is getting destroyed from within. What, what do you, what do you, what are you looking at where you're like, okay, this needs a book like this to be able to deal with this issue? Yeah. So, uh, really looking at the foundational issues, um, as to how America got where we are. Um, and I, I may have to go and, and revise some of the chapters just because, I mean, um, talk about an acceleration that was that has happened here over the last month. I mean, I've been working on this for probably six months or so, uh, and it's it's like all of a sudden it's like, whoa, uh, my book might be outdated before it even comes out. Um, <laughs> but no, it's it, it really goes over, and the premise is – is the moral foundation because the moral foundation for an individual, a nation, uh, a church, wh- whatever institution you look at, the, the moral fabric and foundation is found in um, is found in the Ten Commandments. Uh, and especially when we look at Western civilization, which America is founded on Western civilization, which is essentially taking the questions of the Greek philosophers, who they asked great question like, um, do we need objective justice, uh, things like that. And answering that, and they, they came up with the right answers. They would say yes, but then they couldn't define what objective justice is. The Ten Commandments gives uh, those answers. And so going in and looking at, at those things and seeing how America started uh, and then where America started to fall short in these different things, you know, whether it's um, decaying the family uh, is one. And, you know, it's not just in the sense of uh, – of sexual immorality when we think about that through homosexuality or through pre- premarital sex or or through uh, that kind of stuff. It's it's also through uh, the idea of um, children uh, in their relationship to their parents. Uh, in, in our society, we look at a whole lot more of it's the school's job to form and to uh, shape and to mold uh, children. And why, by, by school's job, I mean we view the secular government's job to do such a thing. And in reality, the Bible tells us, no, that's the parent's job. And, of course, that's the best way to pass down values. And uh, when we look at that, that when that process is taken away, uh, then we have a uh, whole generation that has a different set of values than the generation or two generations before them, perhaps, uh, would be the way to look at that. And I think that we're starting to see some of those things. Um, You know, there's a high percentage, I think it's somewhere like 67 percent of millennials uh, wouldn't be opposed to socialism. Uh, and of course, you know, we might be getting to test that out with a new stimulus package here, socialism here in the next eight years or so. Um, and so, uh, in, in socialism, uh, I think is, is covetousness and it's theft. And which, of course, that's two of the, the Ten Commandments say, don't covet and, you know, don't steal. 
Um, and we look at that, that will destroy a, a nation by their, uh, through their economy. Uh, and we can go and look in, in, of course, all the Ten Commandments. We can look at that. I, I narrowed it down to, to five different principles from the Ten Commandments instead of going and looking at them individually. Uh, put the first four together and uh, then a couple others uh, tie in together because I think they really play off of each other. And we can see that in our nation. Uh, right now I'm working on the, the last chapter. And the last chapter I'm, I'm working on is uh, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor or you know, thou shalt not lie. And it's really looking at this idea of hating our neighbor. And right now, is there any more distrust in our neighbors than what we have right now? I mean, we have uh, mayors, just the, the mayor in, in the town five minutes away from here in the, the, the large, well-known town, um, came out and said, you know, hey, if, if you see people who aren't social distancing, uh, call the cops on, you know, g- give us a call. Uh, I had a friend who there, um, they had a, it was his dad's 70th birthday party and they're sitting out, uh, and, and what they did was they went out and got chairs, got them all social distance, six feet apart, uh, in the, the lawn, they're outside, you know, nobody's close together. Nobody's touching each other. Nobody's, uh, doing anything like that. And the cops came and told them, uh, somebody called us, you know, that you guys aren't social distancing and so you guys need to, need to disperse. I mean, and we're in Iowa. We're not even in a stay-at-home order yet. At the, uh, we might be by the end of the week or something like that. But we're one of the few states that that aren't under that ordinance yet. Um, and but there's a, a huge distrust amongst our neighbors, and it comes to this idea that as a society, uh, we have left the truth behind. And uh, that's, I, I guess, that's really what I've been thinking about, and really seeing that in this whole COVID nineteen crisis. Yeah, you know, and it was it was it was really interesting looking at you know reading some like articles that are out there really dealing with like a lot of the a lot of these issues you're talking about, and like one of them that came to mind when you were talking was there was an article about uh, there was a um, there was a school principal who sent a letter home to the parents telling them don't homeschool your kids, leave that to the teachers because that's the teacher's job, that's not your job, just play games with them, have fun. You know, you know, take it easy, that sort of thing, and leave the teaching to the professionals. And it seems like that is the common thought process amongst both government and then also amongst parents. Like parents are like, no, I'll, I'll just leave, I'll let, I'll let the school do all the hard stuff. I'll let me just do the, the fun and the games and that sort of thing. When from a more biblical perspective, that's not necessarily the way things are supposed to be. Right. I mean, essentially what you're, what you're getting out and what you're saying here from this article is that, um, people are saying, look, the state knows what's best. The government knows what's best. And, uh, you know, the, the big problem is here, we can either believe that, that government knows what's best or God knows what's best. And, um, you know, whether we go back to the, the Neo-Babylonian Empire with, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and we, we look at, at his life, uh, he was, you know, the gold head according to uh, uh, to his vision that that God gave him and that Daniel interpreted. Um, he's the gold standard, um, but yet he spent time as a wild animal, essentially eating grass and, and insane. And why did he spend it insane? It's not because he wasn't a a good uh, king from a, a secular standpoint. It wasn't that he wasn't a good leader. He was a great leader, the best leader we've ever seen. But it was because he failed to recognize that God is greater than him. And so we can either say that government 
knows best or God knows best. And a government that actually does know best knows that God knows what's best. And uh, when the state comes out and says, you know what, you guys don't worry about it. You don't need to parent your children. We'll instill the values. We'll instill the education. We'll instill these kind of things into your children. Uh, what they're saying is we know better than you. Let the state take care of it. Um, and that's a that's a major problem. That's a totally unbiblical worldview. Uh, even if you send your children to public school, um, you need to go and and be going and, and being active in the education of your child, finding out what is your child learning, finding out uh, are they learning, you know, <laughs> what's accurate and what is truthful and according to the Bible and different things like that. It's still ultimately the parent's responsibility to educate their child, even if they're sending their child uh, to a public school. Yeah. And well, you know, and the thing is too, is like school, school used to, again, if we're going back to like the, the founding of our nation and leading up, you know, for probably the what, first hundred years, 150 years, it was mostly teaching them like actual education things like history and math and English and how to write and do all those kinds of things. And now it's turned into more social studies and, and, you know, like, you know, feeling good and common core math, which literally makes absolutely no sense at all to me. And, uh, and, and I feel like it, it's shifted into more of a brainwashing type education system than an actual facts and figures type education system, which I think is really what's leading to this really downfall and crumbling of our society right now when you've got the majority of millennials that think socialism works and big government knows best. Right. And, and you know, I'm, I'm going to say something that, that might not be taken the right way. And if somebody wants to clip this, they'll, they'll probably really make me look bad. Uh, so hopefully you don't do that. <laughs> um, but I'll never forget being in a Sunday school class when I was probably 16 years old. And uh, I was in there and the Sunday school teacher was giving a, an illustration. It was in the summer. I, I went to a smaller church. So at this time, the, the high school got moved into the adult class. And I don't even remember what the, the whole class was on, but I remember his introduction. And he says, you know, somebody uh, confronted me this week and said, it sounds like you're brainwashing your children. And uh, he, his response was, he said, I looked at that person. I said, well, if I'm not brainwashing them, who is? And I, I'm not saying that in the sense of that we need to go brainwashing people. That's that's not really what I'm getting at. Uh, but what I'm getting at is if you're not the one instilling the moral fabric and the moral foundation into your children, somebody else is. And I guarantee you, or well, chances are anyway, maybe I won't guarantee. Chances are it's not going to be the moral foundation of the word of God. Yeah. And, and that seems like that that's one of the mentalities of, of a lot of parents today is – I want to let my kid decide for themselves. So I'm just going to kind of take a hands-off approach and I've got my beliefs, but I'm not going to force it on them and I'm just going to let them make up their own decisions. So how sh instead of that, how should parents specifically be raising up their kids? Right. Well, they should be uh, uh, raising up their, their child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. They should be going in and uh, teaching it. They should uh, be going in and teaching the Word of God, going in uh, instilling the principles of the Word of God. Uh, and, and, you know, God's Word, it teaches, it teaches science, it teaches history, it teaches morality. It, of course, it teaches religion. I mean, that's kind of the, the given one. It teaches politics, teaches government, teaches uh, pretty much, you know, anything you need to know. Um, and, and I'm sure the math in the Bible is better than Common Core, that's for sure. Uh, but but it teaches it teaches uh, all these things, and so there needs to be a a common discussion of the Bible within within the family. Uh, growing up, I, I was blessed. Um, 
you know, my, my parents didn't get saved, uh, early in life, but they did get saved, uh, early in, in their parenthood. Uh, and so, um, I was blessed to, to live what I would say really only knowing a, a Christian family. Um, although at arm's reach, I, I definitely had, uh, some unsafe family members and things like that. But, uh, I can't really remember a day going by in my informative years of a time where we didn't talk about God's work. Uh, and, and of course it was, wasn't just a, okay, you know, list off the facts, name, you know, list the 10 commandments. Well, that's good if you can list the 10 commandments or, or, you know, quote the Bible, uh, the books of the Bible, you know, that's good if you can learn those things. But the discussions we had were, oh, this is what I learned in my, in my devotions today. Uh, you know, and this is how it applied to my life. And so speaking specifically to that application, uh, that's, that's absolutely vital in teaching children how the word of God applies to the life. It's not just religious tenets. Although it's 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 good to memorize verses, it's good to memorize these things, to know these things, uh, but it does actually have action. The rubber does meet the road when it comes to the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, uh, you and I, as well as uh, J.D. Rucker and Ken Peters, we've been working on a project uh, called the American Conservative Movement, and and I think that one of the questions that I want to ask you is when you're looking at moving forward, you're looking at the future of our country and pushing like conservatism and even biblical values into society and things like that. Um, do you, do you feel like there is, that there's certain things that we need to be focusing on first if we want to, you know, really, you know, save our country and then things that are like secondary issues? Or do you think that we just need to have the full on conservative values overall and we just need to you know push it all like do you feel like there's certain priorities or secondary issues or how how do you view all that yeah so i I think that there's uh there's always a horse before the cart right uh there there are those two things um and and i would say the horse in this scenario because we don't want to get the cart ahead of the horse here the the horse in this scenario uh i i think is righteousness you know um book of proverbs says that righteousness exalteth exalteth the nation but sin is a reproach to any people and uh, any people, that includes the United States, and for the last probably, well, at, at least since the Roe versus Wade uh, decision, uh, so, you know, what, 73, I think is, is when that was, uh, we, we've been going out and saying, um, you know, we're the exception to the rule. You know, God's hand of blessing is still upon us. Uh, really, I think, and what we're seeing, and this is where we're really in a dangerous spot with this COVID-19 thing, it, it, you know, even if this, this virus kills millions of people, we're still in a very dangerous spot because of the, the attacks on our liberty. And we're starting to pay back the ungodliness that we have accumulated. You know, our, our account has, has been filling up with ungodliness. And the thing is, is that sin is a reproach to any people. And we're starting to see that uh, reproach. Um, we don't trust the government uh, is what people would, would like to go out and say. And of course, people would, would rail that against me. I was just I've been reading the Federalist Papers and I can't remember if it was Federalist one or two, but it goes and it, and it attacks that idea that some people uh, will want liberty and not trust the government. Uh, and, and it was saying it in a negative light, kind of funny from our founding fathers. But right now what we're seeing with this whole COVID-19 is actually the exact opposite. People say, you don't you don't trust the government. Well, th- that's true. Uh, to, to some point, I don't trust the government. But what we're seeing actually is that the government doesn't trust the people. Um, and, and you can see that, you know, uh, you know, telling people, my goodness, how to wash their hands. Uh, I look, I, I remember learning how to wash my hands when I was in school. Okay. 
Uh, when I was in grade school, you know, sing happy birthday, you know, suds it up, make sure you get uh, into your uh, onto your wrists, you know, go and rinse it off, make sure the water was hot, you know, things like that. I, I mean, it's it's not that difficult of a thing. And yet the government's sitting out here trying to act like it has to tell us how to wash our hands. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong. And I think the right approach uh, or the best approach that I've seen from an executive office is that in Texas, uh, the governor where I think it's Governor Abbott, he comes out and he says, you know, uh, these are recommendations. I don't have the right to take away your freedoms, essentially. Um, and, and I think Trump said something like that, actually, even uh, here recently, which which was a breath of fresh air, although I think he needs to uh, quit letting uh, quit pretending like the the three foot two uh, doctor is our president because he's not. Um, you know, I I'm sorry, we, we didn't elect him. Uh, he really should have no right to be telling the nation what to do. He can advise the president, of course. President can get advice from wherever he wants, but I don't think he should be the one addressing uh, the, the the people of the United States and, and telling us this. He's he's not our representative. We we didn't elect him. Um, at, at least I don't remember that election coming up. Maybe I, I've been brain dead here for a little while, but uh, you know I I really see that the problem is is that the government isn't trusting the people and. Somewhat it's our own fault because we haven't been virtuous. We haven't been a righteous people. And that's what we need to start cleaning up first uh, because these other things come alongside. Now, it's not like this uh, th- this thing where, it, you know, we just leave things like the Second Amendment behind or uh, different things like that. We need to push those ideas, too, because those are those are big. Um, but I, I really think if we're going to have a successful conservative resurgence, uh, so to say, to steal a, a word from the uh, – the Southern Baptist Convention um, in, in the United States here, we need to lead with righteousness and, and figure out, you know, the biblical form of righteousness again, rediscover that. Yeah. And I, and I think it's one of those things too, where, where we kind of need to have two separate approaches. Um, and I think, you know, especially as Christians, right? So like on one hand, we, we, you know, there is the policy route, there is the conservative political side of things that in that direction we can be partnering with non-Christians because that's you know more of a secular um you know how the government works and functions and that sort of thing but but then on the Christian side of things going parallel with the push on conservative values i think that there needs to be a resurgence of actually going out and preaching the gospel because that's mm-hmm. really something that's been i think lost and, uh, you know, there's in, I just put, post an article today on the GK talking about when's the last time you actually saw a, a prominent pastor go out and preach the gospel to the lost. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of talking about the gospel. There's conferences like together for the gospel. There's organizations like the gospel coalition, which isn't really about the gospel, but in name it is. And, but, but I think that we need to actually get back to evangelism. And winning the loss because it, because if we were actually winning the loss, our country would totally change. And I think we, I think we've seen that throughout history with uh, different pastors when they would go out and preach the gospel and we saw a moral change in the outlook of our country for a period of time. And I think that's missing drastically right now. Right. Uh, 100%. You know, I, I think that if you look back at the founding of our nation, you know, as I mentioned here, you did have guys like Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, um, Thomas Paine, who weren't uh, 
Christians, really. I mean, you know, they were, I would say they were outside of uh, orthodoxy. They were, they were heterodox, and, uh, and Thomas Paine, I wouldn't even, you know, consider a Christian. So there was a, uh, a secular element that was there, and of course there is policy that was, well, that was made, okay? What, you know, um, the Constitution of the United States, it's a, it's a wonderful document, but it's not a doctrinal statement, uh, um, in, in that sense, it's much different than our church's constitution. Uh, you know, completely different than that. Uh, now, there are some principles that that definitely you can go and see in are the same, and that's because I think that the principles of the Constitution of the United States were framed out of biblical principles. Um, but I think you're exactly right. Well, if we really want to see a resurgence in conservatism, uh, we do need to be out preaching the gospel because uh, it's not just the minds of people that we need to win. We need to win the hearts of people. And uh, I was just talking to somebody who worked on the the uh, Ron Paul campaign. I couldn't remember if it was Rand or Ron there, but it was, it was the Ron Paul campaign. Uh, he was a uh, really big strategist, actually, for him. Uh, did did quite a bit of the groundwork and stuff like that. So he has uh, you know quite a bit of connections with what we would call the libertarian wing um, of the the Republican Party. And, and he said, you know, he was appalled at seeing all of these these libertarians going out and saying. Yes, we need the government to go and to shut us down even more. Put us on on uh, stay at home. I mean, is there anything more uh, of an anti-libertarian position than the government stepping up and saying you have to stay at home? I mean, that's completely anti-libertarian. And uh, and so he was he was uh, telling me this, and it, it just reminded me here: these people probably had their hearts won over by some kind of a conservative. Uh, movement and a conservative flavor and things like that, but a lot of them probably don't have didn't have their hearts won over, and so when fear came in, they didn't have that anchor uh, because really the only true anchor we can have in this life is Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the anchor for the soul. He is the anchor I would say for the mind and the heart too. And uh, when fear comes in. Um, and, and I mean, COVID-19, that's a scary thing, especially when people are telling you, you know, uh, 2 million people in the United States are going to die was the first prediction there. Uh, and of course that's, that's changed quite a bit now, but when people uh, act in that kind of a way, when the NBA shuts down, when, uh, you know, all these, these different entertainment entities start losing money and all they've been about is money, uh, that's kind of a scary thing and a bad sign and a bad signal. And you start to look at their actions and you start to freak out a little bit. Uh, it, it does get scary and it is easier to leave your principle when fear comes in, uh, and to leave that, that net of, of, uh, what we would call safety and, or liberty in order to get safety. Uh, but the thing is, is that, you know, if, if we, uh, have Jesus Christ as our savior, as he tells us in second Timothy, he hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of, uh, power and love and of a sound mind. And so, uh, we can go and take, uh, you know, necessary precautions, you know, there are good precautions to take. You know, you shouldn't be going out and saw a video of a YouTuber who went and, you know, licked a toilet and then got, uh, coronavirus, you know, Shocker. don't be that guy, <laughs> you know, that's, we call that stupid tax, you know, don't do that. Uh, well, and, 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 let, and let me just clarify, don't do that whether there's coronavirus or not. Just don't yes. do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, I, and I don't want to really get into this discussion too much because I feel like I've talked about it quite a bit. Um, you know, we, we've, we've had church service, uh, here in person church service, not, not an online, uh, service. And, you know, people have, have come and said, you know, all kinds of things about me. If I'm being completely honest here, I'm a bit of a hypochondriac, okay? You know, if, if somebody comes into our church, uh, just on a normal Sunday 
and I find out that, you know, on Monday that, or you know, Monday that Sunday night they were throwing up, I'm like, oh no, I have the stomach flu. And for the next three hours, I'm like, oh, convinced I have the stomach flu. Um, this isn't something that I would want to, to stand against this, this whole COVID-19 thing. Um, it, but it's one of those things of, I, I mean, I, I flush public, uh, toilets with my foot. Okay. You know, I, I'm not doing the whole hand thing. No, that's gross. And I absolutely hate the automatic toilets because like you, you know, it, they go off and you cannot get out of that stall quick enough. And that water is just spraying everywhere. That's just gross. Okay. But, uh, you know, you, you, you look at these things here, we do need to have a sound mind about these things. And, uh, liberty is very precious and it is very dangerous to give up our liberties, um, because history would say you cannot regain liberty without bloodshed. And we don't want a war. We don't want a civil war. We don't want to have to fight for our liberties and we certainly don't want tyranny. And I, I mean, people would go and say, I've had people say, you know, well, you know, we trust the character of Donald Trump. Um, I, I don't know if I would quite go that far that I trust the character of Donald Trump. I mean, he couldn't keep his marriage vows. So I'm a little cautious to go that far that I trust him if we give him a power trip. Uh, so but a lot of conservatives had a lot of different approach than me. But the, the bigger question is, though, and I think the more uh, pressing question is, what about our president in 2024? What, or, or after 2024. What about our president uh, in in 2028? You know, what are those guys going to do? Uh, because it's not like, I mean, hey, maybe Jesus comes back and, and we don't have to worry about all this. Uh, but if he's coming back, we don't have to worry about all this anyway. What are you doing being afraid of the coronavirus? Um, but there will be a president eventually after Donald Trump. And are we going to want to have a precedent that says our liberties are of no value? I mean, would you want the the you know AOC to come out here and be your president and have a precedent of of no liberties, that sounds pretty stupid to me. So hey, you know, twenty twenty four could be Kanye West versus AOC. I mean, I'm just I'm just saying. Um, but that that would be interesting. That would be a fascinating debate. I'm just I'm just I'm just saying. Um, but 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 I but I think also like the, the other side of it too is that a lot of pastors and a lot of Christians say defending our rights is selfish. Like, why should we go out there and defend our rights? Because that's just being self-centered, thinking about me first, not about other people, not about helping the poor, helping the migrant, you know, like it's not, that's not very caring. That's being self-centered and focusing on my rights and what I want and things like that. So what, what's the right way to respond to those kinds of criticisms? Yeah, well, I, I think that's a very short-term view. Uh, you know, as, as the first thing is, I think that's short-sighted. Um, and, you know, it's it's selfish uh, now is what, what people would say. Well, first of all, you know, take precautions. You know, nobody thinks it's selfish to let people go to Walmart right now and to, to get groceries. I think that I have enough faith in the church. I know this is wild to think that our churches can be cleaner than a uh, Walmart cart. I really do. It's it's wild and crazy. I know that's a wild and crazy position, but I really think think it is. And nobody thinks that it's selfish for people uh, to go and to get food. And the reality of it is, is that they say, well, that's a necessity. Well, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And, uh, you know, we look at that, that that's talking about there is a spiritual element to life, too. Uh, the other thing is, is I think it is selfish to want people to survive physically and not have people survive spiritually. 
you know, we want to be sharing the gospel. We want to go and be showing that, hey, uh, we cannot be afraid of, of death even. Why? Because we know where we're going when we die. You know, that's, that, that's another thing. Um, the other thing I, I would, would say, and this is a huge thing to Christians, and, and it rightly should be, is the, the life movement. Now, people would go and say it's not pro-life. Russell Moore would go out and say it's not pro-life uh, to, to go and to have church services. It's selfish. You're risking people's lives, things like that during this whole COVID-19 crisis. Well, do we really think that we're going to win the battle for the liberties and the freedoms of uh, and the constitutional rights of the unborn if we're not standing up for our own constitutional rights? Uh, and in case we're curious, too, I think it's like one or uh, one week or something like that of abortions is equal to more than the worldwide deaths that have been reported for the coronavirus. Um, and and I, I understand I'm diving into the realm of pragmatics when I'm saying that. I'm not trying to say one life is, is above another because one death is, is too many. I get that. But when we look at that, it, it is kind of something to, to start to look at here. Are we really fighting for the unborn if we don't fight for our freedoms? Because how can we fight for their freedoms if we don't have any freedoms to exercise to fight with? Yeah, and and it's, a, it's also one of those things, too, where I would say that, you know, it's not just fighting for our own freedoms. It's fighting for everybody's freedoms. And so that's fighting mm-hmm. for the freedom of the person in in the inner city that wants to get out of that. But they're being held back because of over overly aggressive regulations that doesn't allow them to start a business, uh, makes it difficult to get out of their their poor communities. There, if you promote freedom for everybody, to me that's the least selfish thing you can do, as opposed to sit back and saying the government owes me something. You know, like right. like like just looking at it strictly from that perspective, capitalism and freedom has helped get more people out of poverty than anything else. And socialism mm-hmm. and communism has taken more wealth and sent them into poverty more than any other system. So we got to look at that too. Right. And and I think that you're really hitting on something there because right now, um, now granted it's kind of a self-inflicted wound, but right now capitalism does not seem in the, in the next five minutes, it doesn't seem like it's the best thing for our nation. Uh, and that's what a lot of people would go out and say. I think long-term capitalism is, and it's because I think that principle, if you have the right principle, it always plays out to the right. And so if liberty is the right principle here, or if this is a self-government uh, idea, a self-government sphere, it will ultimately play out for what is best for our nation, for what is best for this generation, for the next generation and generations to come after that. Uh, and, and I do want to go out here and say this too. I'm not saying that churches have to be open. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, I'm saying that I think that churches should have the right to decide, uh, to make that decision, that they should be the ones making that decision if they want to shut their doors or not. And, and that's, uh, was the intent of, I know, uh, the governor of Texas's, uh, position, um, was that he couldn't shut down churches. It was for those churches to decide, uh, and that's my point. It, it might make more sense. You know, if you have 500 people, you have zero technology uh, in, in your church, and you have a, a relatively crammed building that was like bursting at the seams anyways, and you can't do any social distancing, it might make sense to, to cancel your service 
uh, especially if the weather wasn't good enough to have an outdoor service or something like that, or if you didn't have a, a enough space to do an outdoor service. It might make sense. I, I don't know. You know, there's all kinds of different things to factor in and to think about and to look towards uh, with that. But one thing I do know is that the government shouldn't be making that decision. Yeah, and it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see how uh, how these rights are either re-implemented or continued to be taken away coming out of this crisis and for the next for the foreseeable future. Because I mean, when you think about it, they they may still limit large gatherings. They may still put a cap off and say you can't have over two hundred people in a in a in a building or in a room or in a gathering or something like that. That's gonna affect a lot of churches. It's gonna affect. It's mm-hmm. gonna affect a lot of businesses. It's gonna. It's still going to affect a lot, and it is infringing on our right to peaceably assemble, our right to freedom of religion, and to practice, you know, what we believe and worship God as we see fit. It's gonna be really interesting to see how we, as the American people, respond to more than likely the continual taking away of our freedoms and our right to decide what we feel is best, because clearly, big government knows better than any of us. Yeah, it, when you know you hit on the the right to assemble, and this is something that it, it, it started to be talked about, and it's it's kind of interesting because um, the Church at Planned Parenthood uh, kind of went through a fight with this, and, and we were talking about it probably I don't know a month and a half, two months ago or so, uh, Jeff. And um, this is a much bigger right than what people think. You know, most people are saying like, well, so what? You can't assemble. It's not a big deal. You know, who cares? Well, the the loud minority can ultimately defeat a silent majority, and the best way to do that is to make the silent majority feel like they're in the minority, and you do that by isolating them. If you're sitting at your home and you're the only one who has this this thought process of, you know, really churches should be able to make their own decision or, you know what, they're taking away my liberties. You know what, these things are being infringed upon. Uh, this is wrong. You know, maybe you're against a forced vaccination that seems like the is the inevitable uh, with the, the outcome of this COVID-19 uh, crisis. If you're sitting there, but all of a sudden the only thing you're hearing is secular news that's saying, oh, no, 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 government knows best. Government knows best. In fact, government needs to make it even worse. And you're sitting there at home alone and you can't assemble and you can't talk to anybody else who's like-minded, even if 98% of the nation thinks like you, but we're all, uh, you know, putting our own little segments and we can't join together. We have no idea and we can absolutely be defeated by a tiny minority in our nation um, just because they've isolated and segregated us and they've uh, hurt our our idea, our right to uh, assemble peaceably and to just discuss these ideas. Yeah, and and you know, I think I think that that's been kind of the strategy in in them trying to defeat Trump in 2020 as well. Is they've made it to where you can't publicly state any kind of support for him. You can't even really promote conservative values, conservative values, or else they label you as a racist or they label you as a bigot or they, you know, you have, you have to be quiet. I mean, I'm out here in California. Like you have to be careful what color hat you wear or else you could, you could get beat up. Like that's, that's the reality of what, of what we deal with out here. And I, and I think that that's one of those ways of trying to intimidate people and to make them feel isolated in a way. Um, so that way the only people that are able to unify are the non-conservatives and are the people that are pushing these progressive leftist socialistic socialistic ideas. 
Yeah. Well, and, and it's crazy that you say that, too, in, in California. And, and, of course, we know California as this progressive state and everything like that. But one small fact that we often forget is that California actually has the most raw, uh, by raw numbers here, the most uh, the most Republicans uh, in, in the entire state. Now, granted, it's because they're, you know, you guys have a, a lot bigger population than states like Iowa uh, and, and things like that. But, I mean, there are more Republicans in California uh, than any other state, even than Texas, which is kind of crazy to think about. Yeah. Well, you know, and also too, I was, I was following the primaries that were going on out here in California because we've already had them. And, and Trump in the primary running unopposed had a ridiculous amount of, of votes going for him. I, I, if I remember, and don't fully quote me on it, but I think he had more votes this time around than he did last time in, in the primary. And I'll have to go double check that. I'm sure that, he did. Yeah. And yeah. like, in what's crazy is that like, we're literally talking about in California in a primary. He, mm-hmm. he had, a, he had a ridiculous amount of, of support and votes. And so it's going to be interesting to see, is it that people are just fed up and that they're going to actually make sure that they come out and vote? Or is it, or is it, and they just feel like they are being isolated. So now they've got more motivation to go out there. And is this going to be a countrywide kind of mentality as well, um, to defeat Biden or whoever the heck they put in charge of the Democratic, uh, you know, uh, for the nomination. <laughs> I All I have to say is um, kind of on my wish list right now is that Biden and Trump do a debate. Just I don't care if it's over Zoom and they, they show it or, or what they do. But I mean, I, it would just be so entertaining. You know, I, it it really wouldn't be too fair, but it, it would be very entertaining. You know, yeah, I, I, I'm still predicting that leading up to the Democratic primary, maybe even like the day before, the day of, Biden's doctor is going to come out and diagnose him with dementia or Alzheimer's and say he he can't he's not fit to be president, and then they're gonna they're gonna fill him in with somebody else. That that's what that's what I think that's what I think is going to happen. So, I, I mean, there's a pretty good chance of that, and I, I think there's zero chance that that somebody else is going to be Bernie Sanders, um, because otherwise they would have just let Bernie Sanders win. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I mean, clearly they weren't going to do that. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, you know, not, not too much into conspiracy theories here, but I mean, uh, there was definitely a conspiracy against Bernie Sanders. Um, I don't agree at all with Bernie Sanders, uh, policy wise or anything like that, but man, that guy got the raw end of the stick, you know, two election cycles in a row from the Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be interesting to see kind of what happens there. Cause I, I have a, a feeling that his base is going to be pretty upset and he's going to want to come and try to split the, the Democrat party, which I, I, that'd be great. I think that'd be wonderful if he did that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it'll be interesting to see too who, who replaces him. I, I have a feeling it's going to be either Newsom or, uh, or Cuomo, uh, which, which would, would probably be the best opportunity for, for Democrats, uh, way better than Hillary. So. Yeah. I'll, although Hillary versus Trump, uh, round two would be pretty good. Uh, you know, another name that you could throw out there would be kind of like in a dire situation like that. And if, if our nation is still like either just collapsing economically from COVID-19, uh, I wonder if they try to run Obama. I wonder if they try to go into bend some rules and get Obama back out there. Uh, that, that's not a prediction or anything like that. That's, that's not even thought through That's shooting from my hip. So no, no inside information. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, they, they, they could, they could throw Michelle up there and just, you know, who knows? You never, you never know. So 
Yeah. Well, hey, I totally appreciate you coming on. Re- really enjoyed it as always. Um, and also too, want to remind everybody, you know, pre-order Sam's book coming out this summer, Five Steps to Kill a Nation. If you go to gatekeepersonline.com slash store, uh, you can pre-order that. Use the code Sam and you'll get 10% off of that pre-order. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. Really always enjoy having you on in our conversations and both on air and off. So. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, as always, it's been great. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, every, everybody uh, tune in. We will be back tomorrow. Let me just, uh, tomorrow we're going to be back with Dustin Faulkner, who is trying to beat out Sam for the most times in conversations with Jeff. Uh, so make sure that you tune in tomorrow. We'll be uh, going live with him. Um, and then we've got a new show pretty much coming out um, every day. Ne- next week as well, Wednesday, Wednesday evening, we're having on Sam's co-host, Patrick, uh, No Compromise with Evil Wyatt. Uh, so that, that'll that be the, the other half of the Shining Light podcast. So uh, make sure you guys tune in for that as well. And then, uh, yeah, uh, tune in tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. for the America Held Hostage podcast, where John and I are going to be bringing you guys the news. Uh, tune in then here on Facebook, and we will see you guys then. HIV is still an issue in Montgomery County. The more open we're able to talk about HIV, we treat it like any other health prevention. PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. People who are not HIV positive who may be at high risk for contracting the disease. This is a good choice for you. It's just a way for you to sort of take control and say, I'm going to do this to protect myself. Do it for them. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Learn more about PrEP, the HIV prevention medication. Visit doitforumc.org. The HIV epidemic is not over. HIV is still here. The face of HIV is so diverse. The biggest thing to reduce HIV stigma is just to talk about it. Testing and PrEP and HIV treatment and how effective it is today. Undetectable equals untransmittable. Whether you're positive or negative, there's not a wrong door. Whether it's testing or whether it's treatment, do it for you, Montgomery County. Learn more about HIV testing, treatment, and prevention at doitforumc.org.